0: Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and mugs game, Lonnie Diane rich
1: And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and appallingest excuse for an anthropomorphic personification, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about The Sound of Her Wings, Episode 6 from Netflix's The Sandman, Season 1.
0: The Sound of Her Wings was written by Lauren Bellow and directed by Merzi Almas.
1: People may not be ready for my gift, but they get it anyway. Time to wake up.
0: In the sound of her wings, we open with Dream feeding pieces of bread to pigeons in the park. Which, I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to do that because it's bad for birds, so don't feed bread to the birds unless you're Morpheus of the Endless. He gets a pass because his bread is magic. That is my headcanon. A woman sits down next to him. It is his sister, Death of the Endless. She knows something's wrong, but even Morpheus isn't sure what it is. When he was captured, he thought the vengeance would make him feel better. It didn't. Then he was on a quest to get his stuff back, and he did, but it didn't help either. Now he feels worse than when he started, existing under a powerful dose of ennui. She tells him he's a big idiot, and instead of sitting around feeling sorry for himself that his old quest is over, he needs to go out into the world and find a new one. She invites him to follow her around while she works, and he agrees. They go to a home where an old man is playing Schubert on his violin. He recognizes death and says a Jewish prayer, and then she takes his hand and leads him away. As Dream and Death walk to her next gig, he tells her that when he was captured, they weren't trying to get him. They were trying to get her. She takes off her shoes, saying that going barefoot is a good way to stay grounded. She goes to a lake to get Sam, who was recently married, and leads him away as his wife watches his body being pulled from the water. On the way to the next job, Death tells Dream that she used to think her job was the hardest of all of them. And a long time ago, long before this world, she thought about giving up. As she walks various people through their endings, she tells Dream that she's not alone in her job. At the end, she's holding their hands, and they're holding hers. She tells Dream he's not alone when he's doing his job either. The only reason the Endless even exists is to serve them. She says, since she figured that out, she's understood that she needs them as much as they need her. They return to the park and Dream thanks her for reminding him about what he'd forgotten. She has an appointment she's late for, and so does he. So they say goodbye and Dream heads away to the White Horse Tavern, which is closed up. As he stares at it, we go back in time to 1389, when he and Death wandered into a tavern and once again, Death was trying to connect Dream with the humanity he serves. He's not terribly interested. They wander through the tavern, picking up bits and pieces of conversations, but stop when they come across a man named Hob Gadling, who is railing against death. Dream says that if he got his wish, he'd be begging for death before too long. Death says, let's find out. She grants him his wish, and Dream makes a date to meet Hob in that tavern in a hundred years' time. In 1489, they meet and Hobb wants to know who Dream is and how he knew that Hobb would still be there. Dream says he's interested in Hobb's experience and all he wants in return is for Hobb to meet him every century to tell him what it's like. Hobb says it's wonderful, all the ways that life is better, new inventions, playing cards. It's awesome. In 1589, Hobb is Sir Robert Gadling, making loads of money, keeps going away and coming back as his own son. He has a wife and a son. Life is great. Dream is distracted by a young playwright named Will who wants to be great. Dream is interested and grants Will the talent to tell stories, great new dreams to spur the minds of men. In 1689, Hobb shows up drunk, starved, and angry. He's lost everything, his money, his land, his wife died, his son died. They tried to drown him as a witch. And then things got really bad. He's hated every second of the last 80 years, but when Dream asks if he still wishes to live, he says death is a mugs game, of course. In 1789, Hob and Dream meet when they are accosted by a woman, Johanna Constantine. Hmm, interesting. She says that she heard a tale that the devil and the wandering Jew meet once a century, and she wants Dream to grant her immortality. Dream refuses, and her henchmen come at them, and then Dream and Hob get into a fucking bar fight, and it's awesome. After they take down her henchmen, Dream blows sand into Johanna's face, and she falls to the floor, her eyes white. She's shown her old ghosts. Hob suggests they go to another tavern, but Dream says no, it's not safe. In 1889, Dream and Hob meet again, and Dream suggests that Hob has changed, but Hob says it's Dream that has changed. In 1889, Dream and Hob meet again, and Dream suggests that Hob has changed, but Hob says no, it's Dream who has changed. He thinks that Dream returns to that tavern every century for the friendship. He thinks Dream is lonely. Dream is offended by the very thought and huffs out of the tavern, saying he will prove Hob wrong. Hob chases after him and says he'll be there in 100 years, and if Dream shows up, it'll be because they're friends. In 1989, Hobb shows up at the White Horse, but Dream doesn't. Hobb talks to the bartender and finds out that the tavern is going to be demolished. Back in the present, Dream stands in front of the old tavern and sees a sign pointing to the new inn. He walks in, and there's Hobb, writing what I presume to be his NaNoWriMo novel. Hobb looks up and sees Dream and smiles, saying he's late. Dream says he's always heard it's impolite to keep one's friends waiting, and I'm not crying, you're crying. Off to our coda, where we see Desire living in the heart of a statue of themselves, where they call despair to say that Dream is out of his cage and their plan has failed. But not to worry, they have a new plan. All right, Elisa, so here we are with the sound of her wings. Um, I loved this when we talked about it in the comics. Um, it also is a combination of the stories from... Um, Sound of Her Wings, and Men of Good Fortune. So it's those two kind of crunched together um, that I really, really loved when we were talking about them in the comics, and now here we are talking about them in the TV show. What did you think?
1: I loved the fact that, how can I put this, by putting together two of the stories that were single-issue comics, one, The Sound of Her Wings, and one, the Hobgadling story, which, the title of which is... Uh, Men of Good Fortune. Men of Good Fortune. Mm-hmm. Is it, Thank you. Yes. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. eluding me. So, <laughs> By, by combining them, it started me thinking about the thematic resonances and variations yes. on the theme. Mm-hmm. You know, it's absolutely. And that's what is so cool about this. I didn't know when we, you know, hatched this this plot to to do the comics as, uh, you know, analysis <laughs> and then to do the the show, I thought it was going to be a little bit more like the the audible where we would be talking about Mm -hmm. okay we've moved it these are live actors this is but the change is actually in the structure of the stories as well a bit and Mm -hmm. it it works you know the the best kind of um the best kind of pairings of things give you a different flavor as you go back and look uh, at the original you know Item on the list, and it 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 adds yeah. insight into it, and that's what I feel about this. That these are two meditations on the nature of mortality, and they're not identical. In fact, they're they're a little bit they're complementary because yeah, death story to me sort of says we must accept the inevitable, uh, mm-hmm. and and Hobbes story says you know rage rage against the dying of the light. It's mm-hmm. you know. Swinburne's Garden of Proserpine, you know, thank God that all weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. And, <sighs> uh, and, and, and versus, you know, do not go gentle into that good night. So it, there's so much there's so many yummy dichotomies to sink our teeth into in these this
0: fused combined episode. Yeah, it is really fun. Um, You know, one of the things that I was concerned about is that we have all these different kinds of sort of short stories that are being told in the middle of this space. And it works really well in the comic form. And I'm like, how is that going to work in TV? Because you've got to kind of like stitch these together. The thing that amazed me about this is that there was no plan at the time that Neil was writing these to one day do a television series, right? But but you have this nice, soft transfer from the, you know, the Sound of Her Wings, which is where, you know, Death is walking around, all that kind of stuff. And Death is trying to get Dream to connect with people and showing Dream how to connect with people, you know, which is a lesson that this is in the now. So even though we show him going back for all of these years with Gadling, right, that he still wasn't able to do it. But it's really, really about about dream being able to connect with the humanity that he serves right so here we have these two completely different stories stitched together actually in a very nice transfer from one to the other because we have actually death 400, 500 years earlier, 700 years earlier, going back and trying and doing the same thing, having the same freaking conversation with Dream in the beginning of that in 1389 as she was in the present. I think it's kind of genius how it worked that way. It is genius. And as you were saying that, it, you know, my favorite moments
1: on the podcast are when you say things. And even though we have a script and I look at your comments and you look, mm-hmm. sometimes we just come up with stuff that that makes me go, oh, wait a minute. And, yeah. and I just realized, OK, in the history of television, you know, it used mm-hmm. to be that everything was incredibly episodic. You had what I think yes. was called the monster of the week or the crime of the week. Mm-hmm. And people didn't really develop and change. You know, you see it even in a classic sitcom mm-hmm. such as Cheers, where, you know, uh, Diane is always going to be Diane and... and you know, in a bit of an intellectual snob and and Norm is always right. going to be wanting to stay longer at the bar and have another beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of a cheers episode. But as <laughs> as TV changed, we began to see more continuing storylines, which, you know, went along with character development and change. So here there's these self-contained short stories or now some a, a combined. Uh, self-contained episode, but it is all about character development. So I, I don't know, it, it kind of feels like maybe a slightly new thing in TV, the self-contained episode whose main purpose is to show I don't know, character change in development over time.
0: Well, yeah, and it's wonderful because it starts in 1389, but that's not the beginning of our episode. The beginning of our episode is Dream there, feeding the pigeons, feeling sorry for himself, and Death being like, oh, my God, get over yourself, please, right? And still trying to walk him through this, still trying to explain to him what that connection is, how they serve humanity, and they should understand the people that they serve. Then we go back in time, 700, 600, 700 years ago, where we have Death having that same conversation with Dream, still trying to get him to realize it. But it isn't Death that makes him realize it. It's Hub. So Hub planted the seed for that in um it was 1889 when he said if you come back in 100 years it'll be because we're friends and then in 100 years to get stood up and break my little heart as hob is waiting for dream to come but he doesn't know it's like the end of a fair to remember right she doesn't know that he got hit or he doesn't know that she got hit by a taxi cab or whatever you know spoilers for a 50 year old movie but um (laughs) you know the bottom line is that, like, here we have this. It's this relationship with Hob. And then he goes back. And when you see, I mean, it is such a love story with him and Hob. And I love it. Oh, my God.
1: Somebody needs to do the YouTube video. We've got the montage and the rom-com music.
0: And you see Hob. Yeah. And then you see Dream waiting in the glass. Oh, my God. I know it's so. And he's looking at the, with that transition, too. From the, I guess we're getting into our next section anyway, because my overall reaction is, I really love this episode. Okay, so anyway, but like that moment, that brilliant moment where he's drinking, Hob is drinking in 1989 when he's being stood up, is drinking from the glass after regretting the way that he spoke to Dream, right? And being like, I was so stupid. I can't believe I did this. Oh my God, Right. In the glass, and then we see the glass with the same shapes as the cage that Dream is in. And here is the thing this is what I'm talking about when I talk about love stories. When you talk about love stories, everybody always thinks you're talking about romance, you're talking about sex, you're talking about, you know, like whatever kind of like some kind of romantic, like one true love kind of bullshit, right? But the fact of the matter is that the best love stories, oh my God, the best love stories are the friendship love stories. The best love stories are these things, especially between two men, where traditionally our stories have been. The are either shooting each other or fighting for the same woman, that we don't see masculine community very much in our storytelling, that we don't get that sense of just a deep and abiding friendship and love between men. We will sometimes see that between women. Um, but so often we are kind of invested in this, you know, relationship sense of, of romance and love. But the love stories that that hit you, that get you where you live, it's this kind of thing. Like, here's Dream finally learning how to connect. He's connecting with the same dude, the same human every hundred years in this like sense of like, I'm running an experiment, you know, to see how this works. And then when Hobb says, yeah, we're friends, he's so offended by it. Then he comes back after being traumatized, after going through this whole experience, after talking to death and going with her. And she's reminded him of what he needs. And he goes in. And when he says, you, you know, it's impolite to keep one's friends waiting. Oh, my God.
1: There is. okay. so a couple of things about Tom Sturridge's acting here. I mm-hmm. was on a rewatch, just watching. It's it's easy. I know we're going to talk more about Kirby, yeah. um, the wonderful actress who plays Death, mm-hmm. but yes, Sturridge mm-hmm. is giving some wonderful face in this episode. There's as he is watching, uh, particularly the old Jewish man as he recites the Shema mm-hmm. and oh, listening. You see his reaction, and that's you know. To me, always the most moving – well, not always, but a lot – the most moving parts of of acting are when people are just reacting and not what they're saying. I I love watching Tom Sturge's face. And then after the moodiest, broodiest opening, the Mm -hmm. way he smiles at Hobb, it just – I had Richard Armitage finally smiling at the end of – Oh god, mm-hmm. uh, north and south, north and south. You know mm-hmm. when there's that yep. final moment mm-hmm. when you you know it's so I guess that's why I've spent a lot of time watching Richard Armitage on videos with people's music <laughs> underneath. I think I may have oh, to A lot of people have, yeah. I think I may have to <laughs> check out some Tom Sturridge with this. I I loved all mm-hmm. of that. I also yeah. wanted to mention in terms of the visuals. I loved the fun of the pub transitions, (laughs) of going from... Oh, I love it so much. Just going from one... Now, I had... I mean, we go from one, not just decade, one, I don't know, era era to another. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. had a little wish, I guess, that things could be a a little bit dirtier and smokier. I've spent a lot of time Mm -hmm. thinking and reading about the Middle Ages. But I was Mm -hmm. thinking, I don't know that people really would have Um, felt how I I do I feel very like "Ah, I can't talk today in the (laughs) 1970s when you would watch historical stuff because the film was grainier and because people were grainier somehow people everyone Mm -hmm. had large pores in the 1970s and uh, you know large pores and mustaches and there was something Mm -hmm. about that that felt a little dirtier a little grittier people's teeth Mm -hmm. weren't as good it felt kind of more historic. And I don't know how it would be now if we if we saw everyone through the fug of fire smoke and presumably farts as we we're in a pub.
0: Well, I think that it that's that's looking at it from the outside in. Like, I'm sure that if you went back in time and went to the Middle Ages, it would be, you know, and I love this thug of smire folk and <laughs> <laughs> Thug of fire, smoke, and farts. I love that description. I think that that's wonderful, um, but I think that like again, like in in television and movies and visual media, it's not how it is. It's how it feels, right? And so to Ooh. them, it would feel more normal. It would feel more like we have to make it. Somewhat relatable to our experience, or we're going to be distracted by the fact that there's a fly on Hobbs' face the whole time he's talking and he doesn't even care because he's so used to being covered in flies, right? Um, So I think that there are some things where we we want to get across what it feels like to be them back then, but not what it actually looked like because that would be distracting to a modern day audience. So I feel like, yeah. That is so good. I'm sorry. I just, that is, I love. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I just think that that's, and that's sometimes the the price that you pay in certain visual representations of things. But also, again, like we don't, we don't want our historical stories to be actually true to history. We want them to evoke that history, you know, our, our, our true historical stories, you know, like the, the biographies and the textbooks and all of that. We would like for that to be accurate. But I think in our fiction storytelling, when we go back in time, it's so that we can kind of look at humanity through another lens, you know, um, and I think that that lens sometimes is going to be, you know, a little smeared in Vaseline, a little prettied up, right? You know? Um, and I think that that's okay. Like, I, you know, I'm not that concerned about it being uh, realistic. The thing that you want from your storytelling is for it to be believable. And those two things, I mean, in a world where we can watch Lord of the Rings with a million dragons and be like, oh, my God, you know, um, because it's it's a metaphorical experience. So overall, generally, that kind of stuff um, doesn't tend to bother me. But it would be really kind of fun in another venue, in a different type of story, to see something that actually was realistic, to have like a historical thing. Fiction story that really is real to the time and gives you a sense of, and a feel of what it would be like i think that would belong in a different story but um yeah i i think that it was it's so fun it's so beautiful um i love the transitions from you know century to century and the ways in which things change oh my god i love seeing dream dressed up like when he dresses up i just like for whatever the era is it's just so wonderful
1: and and i i also kind of love seeing the wimple. One of my pet peeves a lot when we go look at things from various, you know, eras in the, the Middle Ages is we like to see women's hair. We really like to see mm-hmm. women's hair. And there were periods in history where everybody was wimpled, which meant they had, you know, a, a tichel, a little schmata, a kerchief mm-hmm. over their hair. And mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it was only if you were married. Sometimes it was a certain status. And mm-hmm. I, I just, you don't see it a lot. I think, you know, Olivia de Havilland, as Maid Marian in, in Robin Hood, was actually wimpled. It, it's shocking, mm-hmm. but she was wimpled. And here we have a wimple to death. So I, yeah. I'm, you know, again, I'm, I'm sort of a, a fan of costume accuracy. Oh, not, yeah. not having women wear red lipstick at a time when that would have been a sign of harlotry.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I think that there's a balance to play between the, the realistic and the um and kind of whatever aesthetic it is you're going in your particular story. It's is there are a lot of I bet there were a lot of really deliberate conversations done, you know, around those choices in Sandman. And I think that overall, it is fun to kind of see things. It was really fun to see death in the Wimple. You know, I thought that that was awesome. So, so <laughs> now I also thought I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and tackle
1: just, just, just for a moment, because I've yeah. heard discussions back and forth on some, I love NPR's pop culture, Happy Hour, and obviously, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, when Bridgerton, you know, came, uh, the you know, the first season of Bridgerton mm-hmm. came on and people were seeing really, uh, you know, a, a more diverse casting in the past. Mm hmm. People talked about, you know, the great part of it, having more roles for more different kinds of actors. Mm -hmm. But they did say, you know, is this a world in which racism doesn't exist, in which case we're going to, you know, just talk about it as if, you know, this this is a slightly Mm -hmm. alternate history. Or in Bridgerton, they seem to have a nod to Queen Charlotte. So Mm -hmm. I was thinking, okay, let's acknowledge that at least as I had understood, you know, the Middle Ages, there were not so many dark-skinned, aristocratic women walking around.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: However, I had this thought as I was thinking about that and having, you know, some of that thought of, well, okay, is this an alternate history? What, what was it like mm-hmm. if a, a, a woman of color would walk into, sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, a woman of color walks into a pub in 1389. <laughs> but then I had this thought and the thought was, well, I'm fair-skinned. But if I walked into a pub and anyone knew who and what I was as a Jewish woman, I guess I'd be getting mm-hmm. a quick trip to the, uh, I don't know, the the, the bonfire. And, <laughs> you know, Jews were expelled from England in 1290, and they didn't mm-hmm. come back for 400 years. So, uh, so during that whole period, I, I think it would have been far more accurate for death to be a black woman than... For her to be jewish
0: interesting uh, also though death you know we t- we have her talking about how um how she was the first person she was the first endless there when the first you know living thing you know happened she was there and that makes sense because people were black right you know like the first people were in africa um and so it makes sense that it makes absolute sense that death would be black you know and um and i also like that she will walk in anywhere And nobody's going to give her a hard time, you know, like, I think she gets a pass, right? She'll be able to pretty much, you know, travel anywhere she wants to. Um, And yeah, and it is nice. It is nice seeing more diverse casting. And there's always that discussion of, you know, is it historically accurate? Is it realistic? Um, but that's a question that we don't tend to ask about a lot of other things, right? Because again, it's how it feels, not how it looks, right? You know? Um, so I think that um, it is it is a question, definitely. And, you know, and we were talking about, you were talking about the expulsion of the Jews because Johanna comes in and says the devil and the wandering Jew, right? Yeah. Um, but at that point, were Jews back in England or? No, uh, wait, when does what era is
1: you have to remind me of the dates I've had
0: I think she's 1789 yeah so they
1: came Mm -hmm. back I believe would it have been around the 1640s but Mm -hmm. I mean I do I do know that when Shakespeare wrote the whole Merchant of Venice he would never have Mm -hmm. encountered a living Jewish person
0: Well, interesting. And that shows you that when you write diverse characters, make sure you know exactly what you're talking about and speak to people who have that experience. That is my PSA for today. Um, All right. So let's go. Let's get talking a little bit about kind of the playful sprite energy that Death has. Well, I was thinking about Death and
1: how she functions Mm -hmm. in the Sandman mythology, I had, mm-hmm. I think in the 90s when I started working on Sandman is where I first encountered the term psychopomp, which is mm-hmm. a supernatural being who accompanies the newly deceased through the liminal place, the threshold place between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead. So you got Anubis, mm-hmm. the Archangel Michael, uh, the Valkyries. Mm-hmm. Val- Val- you know, that's a word I never say. Valkyries. Valkyries. Uh, they're all mm-hmm. psychopomps. Um, Baron Samdi, mm-hmm the sly, ironic kind of skeleton guy with the cigar and the top Mm -hmm. hat, he's a psychopomp. So I think in some sense, death is both, she's the personification of death. She's also Mm -hmm. accompanying you through this transition. And I think a large part of her appeal, I think of all these other psychopomps, um, there's a playfulness Mm -hmm. to Baron Samdi that I don't think I perceive in any of the others. But there's Mm -hmm. a bit of a contradiction between death Uh, you know, we we have these associations in our culture as uh, Grim Reaper, and she's upbeat, she's young, she's goth, she feels modern. Um, Mm -hmm. And in the comics though, because she is, she embodies something serious. She is playful, Mm -hmm. but she kind of toggles back and forth a little. She can can be a little more solemn. Mm -hmm. Dream is always serious. He's always solemn, and in, in that sense, I started to think about them as different aspects of, of mm-hmm. how you approach the world. Do you approach it yes. as a serious, you know, it's, it's almost like a musical choice. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that got me thinking about Gadling. just as you pointed out. They, they're both there to sort of teach dream a lesson. And, mm-hmm. and part of that lesson is playfulness, is optimism. And and a lot of it is empathy to, you know, Mm -hmm. death is saying feel with not just for, you know, but but Mm -hmm. get closer to these humans you are meant to be serving. And Hobgadling Mm -hmm. is the human with whom he's going to make an actual connection. He needs that. Mm -hmm. He needs that time. And um, and I I just found this lovely quote about play from uh, the writer Rachel Pollack. Doom Patrol mm-hmm. writer and and uh, tarot card expert. To learn to play seriously is one of the great secrets of spiritual exploration.
0: Oh, I love that. That's really nice. Um, yeah, I think that it is interesting because death is, I think, much more lighthearted, you know, than um than dream. And he struggles very much with seeing humans as this like separate unfathomable you know group and this is after you know when he's having this conversation with that this is after all of those centuries meeting with hob like he still hasn't quite synthesized this idea That he could have love or affection, empathy for for these humans and that that his he's the one telling them stories. He's the one, you know, he's the king of stories. You know, he's the one who's who's doing all of this, you know, storytelling in their dreams and then giving that power to uh, Will Shakespeare um, a little bit so that he can write these amazing plays like this is what he does all the time. But in order to write In order to, like, build stories, you have to understand, you know, and you have to be connected. And it's Dream's disconnection from humanity that I think is at the source of his misery. I think that when we get back to the Nada story, we're definitely going to see um, how that works. And that, you know, Nada was quite some time ago, um, and that maybe it was that experience that he maintain that distance all of this time uh you know to protect himself from from being hurt we will definitely be having that discussion in more detail later
1: (laughs) oh oh i had another thought about that too Mm -hmm. because i well i started to go into this weird endless aspects of self uh yeah and um so because then it gave me a different thought about desire and dream should i yeah, okay. I'll run right through it. Absolutely. <laughs> so, OK, um, I, I was looking up reversal theory in psychology, which I, I guess it's Michael Apter who came up with this idea that we have these dichotomies. And in the past, they were thought of as permanent traits. Some people are mm-hmm. more serious. Some people are more playful. And Apter talked about them as transitory states. You know, emotional states and then approaches and motivations to two things. And so it mm-hmm. got me thinking that, of course, the endless are depicted as a family. But if we were to go all psychological, we can see them as all aspects of the te- of the self. So death mm-hmm. is acceptance and empathy. And when she's around dreams, she influences him to be more acceptant and empathic. Mm -hmm. He dream is responsibility, maybe setting clear boundaries and desire is manipulative and vindictive and they influence dream to be vindictive as well as desirous. So Mm -hmm. he has to be responsible for what he did with Nada, but he's clearly under the influence of desire when he does Mm -hmm. all of that. And the idea that, that that vengefulness is the flip side of being in love. And both of those states Mm -hmm. were were very influenced by his sibling.
0: I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that, like, I think in the comics, as I recall, he did blame... We're getting into mildly spoiler territory, but did blame desire for, you know, what happened and for how it happened without taking responsibility himself, which is something that we all have to do. Even when we are under the influence of desire, you know, we all have to take responsibility. Um, But I love this idea of, you know, because the endless are, I mean, they are anthropomorphizations of, you know, human experience and and the really powerful human experiences, you know. Um, And when you go through them all and you think about them in that way, They become so interesting. I mean, they basically are like walking metaphor you know like and that's one of the wonderful things about fantasy stories is that you just get all of this metaphor all of this meaning metaphor is like you know meaning cooked up in a spoon and injected right into the vein i ah. mean that is what that's how it kind of affects us and that's why i think we love these fantasy stories because it allows us to kind of isolate these particular experiences and look at them independently of the rest of the the mess and all the you know n- signal versus noise that at his life, right? You know, you're able to just look at the one thing. Um So yeah, I love this, you know, um, all of these, these, you know, siblings being representative of these human experiences and then needing us in order to exist.
1: Yes, absolutely. And okay, so there was one other aspect of this that I I did mm-hmm. my little dive into this morning. So after Michael after who I guess, came up. There was another person also involved with this theory whose mm-hmm. name is eluding me right now. But uh, the other author saw these aspects more as fixed traits. It's mm-hmm. Apter who says, these mm-hmm. are transitory. We can all move from one state to the other. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Apter talks about telic. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Versus <laughs> paratelic, telic, paratelic. Mm-hmm. People have taken Greek. I have not. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, a telic or a telic. Telic motivation is doing something for an external reward or, or feeling obliged mm-hmm. to do something. Paratelic is it you are rewarded by the activity itself; it's intrinsically rewarding. Mm-hmm. So I thought, ooh, wait, I see this too. Both death and mm-hmm. Hob find intrinsic rewards in yeah their existences. I don't think you can mm-hmm. call deaths a life. I guess well, one one day a year, I guess. but that's it's a an spoiler, existence, right? Yeah. <laughs> she gets, sorry, I did a, I did a spoiler there, but yeah. Um, uh. Uh, but with Dream, I think at this stage of his development, he he's really kind of anhedonic. He doesn't take pleasure. Mm-hmm. He's doing this out of a sense of responsibility. And so both mm-hmm. these characters are you could also consider them foils to help him find his pleasure and his empathy.
0: Mm -hmm. I love it. I love all of that. I think that's wonderful. I love all the research that you do for this show. You're showing me up. So one of the things that I absolutely love in this episode is that we have Johanna Constantine played by Jenna Coleman, same actress as the one that we just saw in Dream, A Little Dream of Me, right? Um, So this, of course, opens up all sorts of questions, right? Because in the original story, Johanna was in the past. We had that. We had dreams thing where you said, you know, I asked her to do something for me. She did it quite admirably. La, la, la. We'll get to that later. Um, But the fact that it's the same actress with the same name who is in the present, who is in the past, and the second she. Dream, she says do I know you like I feel like they're going to be bringing something into this with Johanna and again no spoilers because that's not how it was in the comics so I don't know I don't know if you know because you've read further in the comics that maybe there's something relating in that but I absolutely love that they're setting this up and not answering any questions right now but the questions are there and I'm kind of excited to see how that plays out me too I have no
1: idea I have a theory mm-hmm. um, I mm-hmm. think that she is not the same Johanna Constantine, but that they, uh, my guess is that they are part of the family of Constantine's, which has been established mm-hmm. in comics as a family of occultists mm-hmm. and um, ne'er-do-wells, and con, men, con men and women and uh, mm-hmm. as well as occultists. And that there yeah. is in some way some kind of genetic occult memory. That there's a little mm-hmm. bit of that, um, oh, Saint Alia of the knife, Dune aspect of all the past carriers mm-hmm. of this role have share some memory with me on a on a at least a subconscious level.
0: Interesting. I think it's the same person. That's what I want to believe. I want them to resolve because the thing is, like, I don't know how they're going to resolve that. But I want it to be at because I think that this is a group of creatives that can resolve that in a way that is satisfying. And when you look back and you go through the story, you'll see that everything that they told you lines up. I I think that I, I'm happy if it's just a member of the family. I think that that's cool, too. But I really, really want it to be like the same actual physical person because I'm a very demanding reader. <laughs> that would
1: be very cool. And I don't know mm-hmm. if I mentioned already that I was so inspired by Lady Johanna Constantine and Jenna Coleman mm-hmm. that I. I kind of tried to have more of a Jenna Coleman aspect to my hair. And I went to the hairdresser. I went shorter than I've been in a decade. So cute. Well, I I thank you. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at the end of it, it turns out that I did not turn into either Johanna Constantine or Jenna Coleman. I
0: remain me i think that you are awesome and that being you is pretty much a gift um that said you know hey keep keep swinging see what happens (laughs) if you're enjoying endless a sandman podcast then you should know that it is only through our patreon supporters that we are able to produce this content for you so we'd like to take this moment to thank everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash chipperish
1: This episode of Endless was brought to you by the chipperish patrons who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. Thank you to our power producers, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose,
0: Sarah, Shelley stephania and stephanie all chipperish supporters get access to the chipperish discord chat where you can pop in meet other sandman fans and chat with the chipperish creators and at ten dollars a month and up you can even attend live tapings for some of our shows thank you to
1: our intrepid editor jack cram whose time and skill is paid for through your support if you'd like to support endless and chipperish media please visit patreon.com
0: chipperish and support us today all right. So here we are now for our second segment, which is Lucianne's Library, which is where we talk kind of like about deeper themes. We talk about behind the scenes stuff. And the first thing that I wanted to talk about is uh, Kirby Hall Baptiste. And this is going to take a little while because I absolutely love her. Um, I first saw her in The Good Place, where she played Simone, who was Chidi's girlfriend for a little while. Love that show. Absolutely thought it was wonderful. I loved her in it. She just completely sparkled the second she came on the screen and was just one of the most delightful characters I've ever seen. Then I had a friend of mine who was like, oh my god, you gotta watch the show, Why Women Kill? And I was like, okay, I'll watch it, because you said to watch it. And it was great and everything, but then, like, as soon as I saw that Kirby Hal-Baptiste was in it, I was like, yes, absolutely, I'm in. You know? Um, she was also in the fourth season of Veronica Mars, which is a show that I have been very deeply attached to. So love her in that. And she's in Barry, which I've been told not to watch because of my like aversion to violence and everything. But I think that now I might be able to handle that. So I'm actually looking forward to watching her in that. Um, But overall, like her performance um, as Death here is... So wonderful, so grounded, still light and playful. And yet, like, what she is, is she is like this completely rounded person. You know, when some, when characters have too much, like when they're always joking, right? Then we knew, we know that they're using joking as a defense mechanism. When, like, Dream, they are a little broody and withdrawn. We know they're using that as a defense mechanism. That is not a whole and complete, you know, person with Death, I feel like here is a character who has come to know herself, who understands her role in the world, who is doing what needs to be done, lives so beautifully in the present. Like, she is basically, you know, the the aspirational model of humanity um, as an anthropomorphic personification. Um, I, I love the performance. I love the character. I love this episode with her. Like, everything. I just I cannot tell you how delighted i was to hear that kirby Hal baptiste was playing this this role and then to see her knock it out of the park the way that she did i'm just i'm so in love with this woman and this is the only like she's i've been looking forward to her. this is the only episode she's in this season this is the only episode she's in and i love it it's amazing but like she has such a presence for being in one episode i would love to see more of her i mm-hmm. this this sounds like a weird thing to say, but I think
1: of her as being a bit like Polly on Faulty Towers. She's, mm-hmm. She is all these other characters have, as you say, you know, aspects that are perhaps not in balance. And uh, I think there was a, an, an interview with the actress who plays Polly on Faulty Towers, the maid. She says mm-hmm. she's sort of the, the, the Laertes of the show. She's the mm-hmm. one who is not nuts. And to take that kind of a character and make them charismatic is, you know, it, it, it's its own challenge because you're not going to play something as broad. And in a way, they you know, whatever aspects of death in the comics were a little peachy keen. I, mm-hmm. I feel there's something a little more grounded and yet still upbeat. It uh, it does It works for me. It really does.
0: I love her so much. And can I tell you about the part of this episode that just made me break down in tears and I didn't even see it coming? Yeah, please. It is the moment. I mean, like here we have this whole thing. Dream is separated from people. You know, death is connected to people. And so we are showing them, you know, kind of in opposition in the first half of this episode. Right. This is also a transitional episode between the quest story that we got before and the doll's house, which we're moving into next week. Right. Um, So this episode is very much a stop and breathe and think, you know, kind of episode. So I'm going through it, you know, we're walking through it with death and I'm like, oh, okay. Like the, the thing in the comic books, like, you know, when the woman found her baby and we see her screaming on the floor, like we see that, you know, the, the aftermath of these losses, you know, and this grief going on. But in this episode, we cut short of that. We see, you know, like Sam's wife running toward the water. We see a body being pulled out, but we cut away before We hear the scream. We see them walking out of the nursery with the empty crib, right? And cut out before, you know, all we hear is the mother saying, Lovey, you know. So there's all of this stuff, and I was like, All right, thank you for not making me go through all of that stuff. I thought I was safe. I thought I was gonna get through this episode without crying. And then there's this moment where she says, At the end, I'm there with them. I'm holding their hand and they're holding mine. And that sense of, you know, that even death, with all of her knowledge, with all of her understanding, with her, you know, existence that goes beyond and above like any human experience, you know, um, she is so present with all of these people that she needs them too. She needs them to walk through this experience with her, that this is like this sacred, special moment of ultimate connection. And she connects with all of them because she knows she needs them. And there was something in that that's still even talking about it now, I'm starting to feel all, you know, the clumped. But yeah, it's just, it's so... Beautiful and touching and unexpected because I thought I was going to be, you know, breaking down in in the nursery, you know. Um, And yet, like, here she is just creating this very beautiful experience, you know, from this thing that everybody needs to go through and that everybody's afraid of. Why do they fear the sunless lands? I am more terrible than you are. Um, I love that. As and we probably I just want to say to everyone acknowledgement,
1: there was this sequence, which presumably we've cut out of me trying to remember what the hell I had the idea to say in response <laughs>
0: to Lonnie. But then it came to me. I was going to let you get away with that. I was no, just going to cut all that out. I was just
1: <laughs> complete brain fart. So it was when we were talking about the Middle Ages and you talked mm-hmm. about we are not looking from the outside. People didn't see themselves as, you know, having large mm-hmm. pores and scraggly hair. Sure. And we're staying with death and the person she's accompanying. Our focus is no longer on the people that we've left behind. Our yeah. focus is mm-hmm. on where we are going in this huge mm-hmm. transition. And I, it, it reminded me, you know, I, I've had many discussions with Neil about the themes in The Sandman over the years. And I remember at one point we were walking. And he said something which I wish I could remember more accurately, but Mm -hmm. it was something along the lines of, we're all riding this escalator, and the least interesting thing is the fact that some people fall off earlier than others. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is about how our, our lives and our deaths don't always have the meaning that Mm-hmm. that we get from story and story is a way mm-hmm. of reconsidering and doing you know creating an ending that adds to the meaning as opposed mm-hmm. to the struggle that we all have which is you know death comes at odd times and mm-hmm. it it you know if there is a greater meaning it is opaque to us and mm-hmm. uh, and and will remain
0: so <laughs> so well because um, that's how it goes yeah like the the meaning is like you know I've always said that meaning is the currency of the universe and people are meaning generating machines that that is what we are here to create is meaning through the things that we do and the way that we do it and the stories that we tell and again stories are creating that meaning in this like condensed it's like a consomme of meaning right you're cooking it down you're boiling it down you're getting out all the impurities and when you hand it over to somebody it packs a wall up of flavor you know um, and So when all of that meaning is attributed to this one moment of death, of the ending, right? As opposed to all of the things that happen every day that we kind of don't pay as much attention to, you know, death becomes this whole huge thing. And then we don't pay attention as much to the dreams, you know, the stories that we tell every night in our sleep, right? The meaning that we generate every night in our sleep, and then wake up and we're like, why am I dreaming about polka dots? I don't understand what that means. What is the symbolism? Let me get out my young, right? You know? um. So I think that it's, it is, death is a huge moment, but it is not the hugest. Like how we die is one thing, but how we lived, like that's, that's where we're generating all of that meaning. That's where we're creating all of that. Um, and so like, I kind of love the idea that the least interesting thing is when somebody gets off the escalator, right? You know, It's like what they're doing in the time that they're on it.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, for anyone who is listening and might be going through their own, you know, experience with mortality, either through yeah. their own body or someone's body that's close to them, I was thinking... I keep rereading Swinburne's The Garden of Proserpine." It's one of my favorite Mm -hmm. poems. With age, I am much fonder of that poem than I am of Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light. Mm -hmm. I feel like saying, no, Dylan Thomas, it is important to have a sense of humor about the dying of the light. (laughs) (laughs) Raging is just called sundowning, and there's medication for that. Um, But. But the other poem that I love is by Theodore Ruthke, R-O-E-T-H-K-E. Um, mm-hmm. And his poem is called The Waking. And it's clearly about death, but it's about the waking, the not death. Yeah. And somehow that mm-hmm. feels very germane to this. My, my, the, the, only, yeah. the only part of it that I have memorized is the lowly worm climbs up the winding stair because mm-hmm. I thought, here's this really profound poem, and it reminds me of Richard Scarry's character, Lowly Worm.
0: <laughs> anyway, I, that. Yeah. I
1: digress a little bit. At some point, I would love to know a death story for all the animals. We know death obviously comes yeah. for the cats, but I, I wonder how she comes to the worms and the mm-hmm. mice and you know, maybe maybe Neil at some point will do a children's book where
0: death. I know will publish it. <gasps> oh, I guess. Oh,
1: I would love that. Death just comes <laughs> for all the different little animals. Oh, yeah, is that very and macabre? like how
0: that's. Well, you know, I mean, the thing is that, like, the idea of talking about death as an experience, which is a human experience, and you know, spoiler alert, we're all going to experience it at some point or another. You know, not um, me. I. I Not me. I, you know, I know that it's, uh, I don't think it's macabre to think about death. I think that like one of the things we have this meditation on death in the first half of this episode, and I would never describe that as macabre, you know, like, because I think that it is, it is so beautiful. And it is an exploration of something that we usually only tell, we tell death stories in terms of fear. You know, And in terms of resistance and in terms of raging and all of that. And the, there's a lot more to a death story. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about like Neil Gaiman's death in The Salmon, but like stories that involve death that, are, that can be beautiful and that can be, you know, like a celebration. And it's something that we all have to go through you know, at least, you know, we have to go through it definitely with the experience of people who we love dying and then ourselves. And, um, I think culturally we are, uh, really resistant to talking about it, to thinking about it, to having anything. And I think that that makes us emotionally unbalanced. And so to see a story like this, where death is, empathetic and kind. They just need a kind word and a friendly face. And like, yeah, you know, when she goes for the man playing the Schubert, you know, and he's there and he's all alone. He says, can I just have a minute? And he says his prayer. The That is so incredibly touching, so incredibly meaningful and so incredibly beautiful. Like that's a beautiful moment. And I think that we can see the beauty in death. I mean, when you've got somebody like Kirby Howell Baptiste, Representing death, we see beauty in death, literally, you know, Um, but there is beauty in that. And I, I really love that we have a death story that is, is beautiful and touching and sentimental and kind, and not about the fear, you know, and not even about the loss Right. It's just about this is the next thing that you got to go to. And I'm here to help you do it. I absolutely love that. But now that we're talking again about all the things that we love, what's your favorite part? So this is a perfect segue, um, which is mm-hmm. good because it requires at this point in my life,
1: a perfect segue for me to remember what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> so there's there's a death in this story that there isn't mm-hmm. in The Sound of Her Wings or in the Hobgoblin mm-hmm. story. And it's a death that touches me deeply. It's the death of the pub. Yes. The pub is a character. So in the comics, which were written in the 80s, -hmm. the late 80s, Hob just keeps coming back to this pub. And as many pubs do in England, it just continues year after year, era after Mm -hmm. era. But sometimes old things do Mm-hmm. actually end up becoming destroyed being destroyed and so the pub I, I, I'm I, not clear if they knocked it down or they turned it into some private estate or I, I think if they turned it into a private yeah. estate and mm-hmm. it reflects for me something wonderfully poignant it is a a, a, a mm-hmm. death and a rebirth because the pub is closed to Hob he can never go back there mm-hmm. but the spirit of the pub is now in a new place and that is where he will meet his friend. And I think I love this because it feels Mm -hmm. like the work of a more mature writer. The, the Mm -hmm. idea that you can just say, won't, won't die, not here for it. Gonna keep going exactly (laughs) as I am. It's a wonderful defiance, but Mm -hmm. you know, one of the, uh, one of the things I do think changes as we get older is you realize that it is transformation, which seems so unimaginable when you're little. You look at an old person and you think, how did that happen? You know, (laughs) how is it possible my grandparent was ever the child that I see in this? Mm -hmm. I guess people didn't smile in the old world. But but now you see how these transformations are possible. And so it, it feels all the youthful truth is still there. And yet there is the death of this pub. So sorry, that was very long winded and also kind of rambling. But let me ask (laughs) you what your favorite part was.
0: Oh, God. When Dream shows up after his captivity you know, to find Hob and admits that they are friends. Like, that to me is such... There's so much in this episode that I find so incredibly touching and so wonderful. But that gets me every single time. And my second favorite is when Hob gets out of his car with his massive cell phone and his car blaring. She drives me crazy in 1989. Yes! That was such a thing of absolute beauty. Um, I love that. And the thing is, like, I have this thing with old technology. Whenever I see a floppy disk on any TV show, I'm like, oh, my God, you know. Um, so to me, like, just to have that reference to the technology of that moment, um, it's, it's so fun to see that. And I really loved that. So, yeah, I mean, I just I loved. like, can I say the whole thing? The whole thing. The whole thing is my favorite part. I get you this. This, you
1: know, I don't know if I have been as able to articulate all the things I love about this episode, but mm-hmm. it is my favorite so far.
0: Alright, if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode
1: of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, you have everything to live for and nowhere to go but up. We will be back next time with The Doll's House, episode 7 of Netflix's The Sandman Season 1. Until then, do you know who?